So in this quilt, I see 15 panels, five across, three down, and each panel has some sort of image, like maybe a story that it's telling. Each block tells its own story and kind of seems like a, maybe like a picture book, each section. I see all the work that they did all by hand that takes time and time and to be a good one and be able to do it. It's squares, but they're not perfect. It's not perfect lines. It's sort of, it looks very handmade and a little wavy, like the person didn't have a ruler. Looks like there might be a little bit of let me, let me, applique going on here, too. And I see some um, embroidery, too, because those eyes are embroidered right there, right there, right there. And um, that's also backstitching, which is part of embroidery. So yeah. she uses applique, embroidery, and quilting techniques. So it does everything, a little bit of everything. It's, it's amazing, actually. <laughs> I'm a quilter myself, but this is amazing. And there's a lot of color, although it's kind of muted except for the oranges, which are very bright. There are like these people, and many of them, that are doing little actions. And there's some birds and some other animals, and it's kind of childish drawings, like child, like child shapes. It's very, very cool. You know the, um, when they, they, they discovered drawings in caves? These are kind of like the drawings you see in the caves from early man, I think. So I see images of what I think are stories from the Bible. There's a person who looks like falling off a boat, maybe being swallowed up by a whale. Maybe that's the story of Jonah. One has two of each kind, which I think could be Noah's Ark. And then I see images of the three people on the cross. And in a lot of them, their arms are facing up, which makes me think of praising. And you see a number of figures that look like they have their hands raised to receive these sort of, I guess, lights that are coming down. Um, and so it's a, for me, it's interesting to wonder if it's awe, if it's excitement, is it, is it fear? I see a lot of things in it. I mean, what I see is slavery. I see, you know, such a lot of nice little things in that as well. It's not all sad. It's happy as well. And I can't look through the eyes of a slave person who did this. Mm -hmm. so. I'm just looking through it from my eyes, and that's all I see. I don't see all sad stuff, I see happy stuff too. This is The Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses one object at a time. I'm Tamara Vishai. Episode 55, Harriet Powers' Pictorial Quilt, from 1895 to 98. 
My husband and I never went on a honeymoon. I don't know how many newlyweds have this same story. You put all this energy into the wedding, the logistical details, the personality management, and the idea of planning a whole other trip on top of that just feels impossible. We promised ourselves we'd get to it eventually, but bank accounts got drained, way led on to way, and it just never happened. So the following year, when it seemed like everyone we knew was getting married in every state in the country, we made a pledge to go. Every wedding. It'll be like 10 different mini-moons, we told ourselves. Two days in San Francisco here, a night in Hartford there. A positive yes-let's attitude. And maybe we'll pick up a memento or two along the way to give the year of the mini-moon its full honey-meaning. So fast forward to six months later. We're in a country store in the middle of nowhere outside of Denver, about to celebrate the nuptials of my husband's parents' friend's daughter. And I'm standing in front of the most beautiful quilt I've ever seen. It's white with green and teal interlocking rings, and it's gripping me. And I'm doing everything I can to talk myself out of buying it. I mean, it's expensive. It's just a quilt. I can buy one anywhere without splurging like this. And after all, it might get spilled on or loved a little too hard by our cat. And sure, it'll look beautiful for a while, but eventually I'll stop seeing it. And of course, we do these mental gymnastics when it comes to usable art, that is, handmade craft. This is the dilemma of being confronted by a world where cheap utilitarian machine-made objects reign supreme and separate themselves from the aesthetic decisions of individual talented hands. This quilt, I kept rebutting myself, is expensive because it's handmade. Someone took the time to stitch all those little stitches. Someone chose that specific pattern, in this case the double wedding ring pattern, to tell a story, to infuse that otherwise banal fabric with meaning. Why is this any different than a painter with a canvas or a sculptor with a chisel, other than the fact that I actually get to touch it and more than that, use it, smell it, infuse it with my smell, my story? Because obviously we bought the quilt. Double wedding ring pattern, I mean, come on. And it's our wedding quilt, our mini-moons quilt, our memento of incredibly profound meaning. It's been on our bed for the last six years, a cuddly home to our sleeping cat and then to our infant son. And what's amazing is I never actually stop seeing it. Like any piece of good art, even one that I snuggle under to watch Netflix on my phone, it never stops being evocative and it never stops being meaningful. But you can't convince someone that craft is like that unless they've experienced it themselves. No one thinks that quilts, for example, or a museum exhibition about quilts, will be as interesting or historically compelling as they actually are. So let's start by looking at their role in the culture. Scholars tend to point to quilt making, and specifically quilt storytelling, as a distinctly American phenomenon. Quilts that are art objects run the gamut, like America itself, 
of identities, ethnicities, socioeconomic strata, and geography. That is, they're equally at home in both rural and urban areas of the country. I mean, when a craft is passed down through generations, it's enormously egalitarian. And because quilts are created to live in the most intimate spaces in people's lives, their bedrooms, they're deeply personal and personalized. And this American, egalitarian, and intimate art form is perhaps no better expressed than in the pictorial quilt of Harriet Powers, one of the most exceptional objects you never realized was part of the Museum of Fine Arts Boston's collection. It, along with the Bible quilt, are the only two surviving quilts by Powers, and maybe one of the most famous and well-preserved examples of African-American folk art and 19th century quilting. And yet, even with these kinds of superlatives, it isn't so surprising that you've probably never heard of it. Like I said, quilting, and the craft side of fiber art in general, tends to be overlooked. As we talked briefly about in episode 15, it's largely been dismissed as quote-unquote women's work, too utilitarian to be taken seriously as an art form. I mean, what other domestic tasks are we going to call art? Doing the dishes? This attitude changed, mercifully, in the 1960s and 70s, when newly liberated women artists and the work born from their needles and thread entered the mainstream. And with this liberation came the enormous power of what Ghanaian fiber artist Elena Tsui calls, quote, the poverty of materials. That is, the art of creating something valuable from what is essentially discarded scraps. In his case, it was the metal caps and aluminum labels stripped from beer bottles. And in the case of the 18th and 19th century quilters, it was the remnants of old clothes and other bits of used cloth. The detritus that, as Anatsui continues, quote, in no way precludes the telling of rich and wonderful stories. And it's these humble, reused materials, given new life as a means of conveying these rich and wonderful stories, that are the cornerstones of a quilt like this, and a life lived by Harriet Powers. The American novelist Alice Walker all but anticipates Anatsui's words when she describes her first experience with Powers' Bible quilt, writing for Ms. Magazine in 1974, that despite the fact that, quote, it follows no known pattern of quilt making, and though it is made of bits and pieces of worthless rags, it is obviously the work of a person of powerful imagination and deep spiritual feeling, end quote. And it's a testament to Power's innate talent and vision as a quilter that her work was able to tell her story so clearly. She was a black woman born into slavery in Athens, Georgia in 1837, freed at the end of the Civil War, and then newly oppressed by economic hardship, despite ultimately becoming a landowner. She was a mother to at least nine children and an expert self-taught seamstress, with a specific skill in what is known as applique, that is, sewing shapes and pictures of fabric onto a blocked patch of quilt, which not only referenced West African techniques, but in her hands became uniquely American. 
And it should be said that the kind of appliqued quilt that we're talking about is a very different kind of storytelling. The double wedding ring pattern of my mini moons quilt is something else, a recognizable motif known throughout the quilting world and imbued with legible cultural significance, but at the end of the day is still just a repeating geometric pattern. If it tells a story, it's the story of my cat, my marriage, my baby, my bedroom. But an appliqued quilt is created to tell a story all its own, before there's any projected significance. Power's two surviving quilts, this pictorial quilt, as we'll be discussing, and the Bible quilt, which lives at the Smithsonian, are literally narratives, like a storyboard for a film, except without the clear narrative sequence. Instead, we have 15 densely appliqued squares depicting biblical scenes that speak to the intensity of Powers' Christian faith and her awareness of her current moment. And this is important. We'll come back to it. The style, meanwhile, which emphasizes color, form, and contours over specific detail, share a kind of free-flowing, jam-packed, groundless stream of consciousness that call to mind the later paper cutouts of Matisse, or, as we'll get more into later, the admittedly far more grotesque silhouettes of Kara Walker. There are clear references to the Old and New Testaments, to the stories of Job, of Adam and Eve in the garden, of Jonah and the whale, of figures on crucifixes, and of the Book of Revelations. But we also see current events, as described by Powers herself. Cold Thursday, 10 of February, 1895, a woman frozen in prayer. Other squares depict natural phenomena from the more recent past, a meteor shower from 1833, a forest fire from 1780. And these scenes, side by side, reveal two things about Harriet Powers, which I've just alluded to. First, as Alice Walker inferred, she was a woman deeply committed to her own Christian faith. In Powers' own words, her quilt intended to, quote, preach the gospel in patchwork. And second, she possessed an ability to tap into the modernity of her own moment, to recognize the inherent value of life as it was being lived, as seen through stories, both contemporary and timeless. And both of these elements, the timeless religious aspect and the contemporary moment, are reflected in the history of ownership of these two quilts, what curators call the provenance. It's hardly surprising that the quilts have always had white owners, although as far as records tell us, they were owners who were deeply moved by the content, by the clear intensity of Powers' vision. The Bible quilt, which, true to its name, contained exclusively biblical scenes, and was created around 1886, a decade before the pictorial quilt, was owned by Jenny Smith, an art teacher at a girls' school, who had originally seen the quilt displayed at the Northeast Georgia Fair, and was moved to offer Powers $10 for it, the equivalent of about $300 today, describing Powers' style as, quote, bold and rather on the Impressionist's order, while there is a naivete of expression that is delicious, end quote. Powers refused to sell at any price, on the grounds that the quilt, the, quote, darling offspring of my brain, was too meaningful to part with, although she did end up eventually selling it to Smith for half that amount a few years later, when Powers fell into her own financial hardships. 
And it's tempting to dismiss this story as a straight-up taking advantage of a power disparity. Although, to her credit, Jenny Smith did make an effort to keep this quilt publicly and politically visible, displaying it at the Negro building of the Cotton States at the Alabama International Exposition in 1895. It was an enormously popular exhibit that attracted almost a million visitors. And its popularity might very well have paved the way for the Pictorial Quilts Commission a few years later. And it's the provenance of the Pictorial Quilt that carries us into the 20th century, yet still indebted to Power's original artistic intent. Because the Pictorial Quilt, too, was highly regarded for the emotional authenticity of its religious content. It was most likely given as a gift at the appointment of the Reverend Charles Cuthbert Hall as president of the Union Theological Seminary in New York in 1897. Hall had served on the board of trustees at Atlanta University, a university itself founded in 1865 with the intention of educating newly emancipated slaves. And Hall was one of several white Protestant ministers who sincerely intended to offer help and guidance to the black community at the time, however helpful it ultimately was. Still, there was no question in the minds of the quote-unquote faculty ladies who banded together to purchase the quilt for the occasion that a gift like this, created deep from the soul of an emancipated black seamstress, would be both deeply meaningful to Hall and optically advantageous to his cause. The quilt was then proudly hung in Hall's summer residence in Westport, Massachusetts, for more than 60 years. And side note, imagine passing this every day on the way downstairs to the breakfast nook. You know they also never stopped seeing it. Hall's son then approached the MFA to sell the quilt in 1960. And amazingly enough, even the museum, once it had ultimately acquired the quilt a few years later, didn't really know the value of what they now possessed keeping it in storage for another decade until, as I said earlier, second-wave feminism introduced the world to the value of quilt-making, and the MFA realized it was sitting on a historical goldmine. And it's easy to see why a quilt like this was so poised to make a splash in this moment of rediscovery, a double whammy moment of early postmodern identity politics in the 1970s, and the rise of outsider art. The phrase outsider art was coined in 1972 and refers to art by artists who are self-taught. We talked about it briefly in episode 36 in reference to Cecilia Jimenez, the Spanish hero who took it upon herself to restore the Eche Homo fresco to its <clears throat> present glory. But Jimenez aside, it's an enormous disservice to think of outsider artists as bad artists, or the crudity of technique as inherently worse than that of artists trained in the finest art academies. On the contrary, there is a richness and an authenticity that can be found in the work of artists who are first and foremost observers, who receive their training from quote-unquote amateurs, passing techniques down through generations, the way that the best recipes come from grandmas, not the Food Network. This lack of formal training shifts the emphasis towards intuition, towards the inherent emotional power of work that just needs to be created, even if, in the case of powers, 
the corners of the quilt don't quite match up. And there are many examples of artists who intuitively create both narrative and abstract designs without the benefit of formal training. Look no further than the quilters of Gee's Bend, Alabama, a small isolated hamlet just southwest of Selma, and home to some of the most extraordinary and important contributions to black visual culture in the country. Many current residents of this community can trace their ancestral lineage back to slavery, and then where freed slaves subsequently stayed as sharecroppers, all the way up to the 1960s, when a quilting bee was birthed that eventually gained national attention for the artistry and historical and political significance of their quilts, which, as with Powers quilts, were made of found scraps of clothing and borrowed from West African aesthetic traditions, and, uniquely to G's Bend, Native American aesthetic traditions too. What's especially striking about these quilts is that the lack of formal training meant that they had no constraints, no obligation to follow, for example, the strict double wedding ring pattern of my Mini Moons quilt. And so you end up with fiber art that's truly artistically imaginative, and maybe wouldn't even be out of place alongside some of the most avant-garde mid-century minimalist abstract paintings. Take, for example, the bricklayer or courthouse steps quilt from 1955, attributed to sisters Criola and Georgiana Bennett Petway. The pattern, called the housetop or log cabin pattern, lines up strips of deep, vibrant red against white to create an hourglass shape that appears to recede into the horizon as starkly as Carmen Herrera's color field painting that we looked at in episode 43. The patterning is as sophisticated and precise as anything you would expect from a formally trained quilter or a formally trained abstract artist, and maybe even more evocative for its intuitive creativity. Not everyone can look at a bag of clothing scraps and create a design that is so clean and so arresting. And I should add that there's another, more politically charged element to the idea of the untrained, the crude, even the grotesque, a word that, depending on context, can run the table from simply distorted to truly monstrous. Once outside the formal rules, and once within one's own subjective emotional landscape, a lot can be said through passionate, unconstrained narrative that sits outside a formal convention. It's almost as though outsiders to the art world can speak a more authentic kind of truth. As I mentioned earlier, it's hard to not see the applique cutouts of Powers' quilts and not see forward to Matisse, who basked in the joy of the untrained, non-Western, quote-unquote, naivete, or forward still, and a lot more brutally, to our current moment and the silhouettes of Kara Walker, whom we discussed briefly in episode 50. Walker's work, like the MFA's The Rich Soil Down There, has become almost synonymous with cutouts of deeply unsettling narratives that speak to the horrors of slavery. These scenes are comprised entirely of silhouettes, which make you feel like you're furtively spying on something horrifying from a distance from behind a scrim. Scenes of blatant violence, forced sexual acts, unmoored bodily functions, an overall breaking down of societal norms into a shadowy, bestial free-for-all 
that entirely subverts the staid portraiture we're used to associating with early 19th century upper-class silhouettes. There is, of course, nothing so disturbing depicted in Powers' quilts, and nor would her Christian values or contemporary mores ever let her entertain the idea of depicting these kinds of scenes. But it's interesting to see Walker appropriate elements of this style to speak to those unspoken realities of Powers' moment, and in language that would have been recognizable to the moment, albeit in a pretty grotesque and subversive way, as perhaps the moment demanded. And I think, maybe, this is why stories, even on quilts that we might not have ever noticed, or even bothered to consider art, are so important. Whether they are stories sewn onto the fabric, or stories acquired over the history of their ownership, or the stories that are left untold in their moment, Harriet Powers understood the importance of telling them. And not just the stories from her own faith, or of her own moment, but the story of quilting itself, the narrative power of quilting, which she apparently talked about to, quote, anyone who would listen. And people did listen. She was a formidable presence, clearly not a woman afraid to live her own truth. Even the only known photograph of her shows her wearing a typically severe expression of the times, and a wonderfully whimsical apron, embroidered with the same style of applique that we see in her quilts. And the fact that she was known for this in her own day, given her circumstances, and the fact that her role in quilting history was later obscured and needed to be rediscovered when it was more politically convenient, her living fame really mattered. The fact that Powers wasn't anonymous in her lifetime, writes the MFA curators, only adds to the importance of her work and her own story. And this should encourage, even compel us, to stand in front of her quilts, her art, and see them, really see them, and never stop seeing them. I mean, as if we could. The exhibition Fabric of a Nation American Quilt Stories, which contains, among other exquisite textiles, both the Bible and the pictorial quilts reunited at last, is on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston until January 17th, 2022. And you can easily get tickets at mfa.org. Special thanks to Ashley Blymus and Olga Kvan at the MFA, to roving correspondent Galen Beebe, and to the intrepid museum goers that she interviewed in the galleries. For more information, past episodes, and all of the images, go to thelonelypalette.com or follow us on Instagram at thelonelypalette or on Twitter at lonelypalette. Leave a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts and consider supporting the show on Patreon in exchange for swag and in the new year bonus content at patreon.com slash lonelypalette. You can also get more information about our virtual museum tours, which make excellent corporate events and holiday gifts, and subscribe to our newsletter at our website, again, www.thelonelypalette.com. 
The Lonely Palette is a proud founding member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-based collective of thoughtful, mind-expanding podcasts. And if you're a fan of our show, then I'd bet dollars to donuts that you'll also enjoy Anger Management, the latest episode of the podcast Ministry of Ideas, where host Zachary Davis explores our fraught relationship with anger. We often feel pressure to suppress it in ourselves, trying to stay calm and turn the other cheek. And as the mother of a two-year-old who's been exercising his autonomy lately, I certainly understand this. But anger is our natural response to injustice and can catalyze us to fight for change. Listen at hubspokeaudio.org, ministryofideas.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.